0: I want you to open to a couple of places in the New Testament. One is Acts chapter 20 and Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. I want to read in Acts 20 and verse 19. I'm only going to read the first part of the 19th verse. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. That's the only part I want to read. Serving the Lord with all humility of of mind. And then Philippians chapter two and verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Jesus also said, we don't have to turn to it, Matthew 11, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Paul also told us what things we should think on, things that we use our mind for, our thinking. What we think about and the things we dwell on and the things that come in that give us something to think about basically will determine what kind of attitude you have during the day. Last week I talked about fatal departure, tonight I wanna talk about fatal attitudes. You need to hang on tonight now, fatal attitudes. When I talked about fatal departure, We'd said there's a lot of people that are departing from the faith, just like the Bible said, we're watching it happen. here. some 2,000 years later, it's really happening, right before our eyes, just like he said it would. One of the reasons that it's beginning to happen is not so much of the giving heed to seducing spirits or a mixture of truth and error gospel, but the clear truth of the gospel. A lot of people are departing from the faith because the conditions that God outlines in his word for discipleship are pretty demanding. And not very many people are willing to accept those conditions in their life. It imposes a sort of a hindrance on your freedoms to do the things you want to do. We like to think we're free to do whatever we want to. We don't want anybody telling us we shouldn't. We don't want anybody telling us why we can't. It's our life, our time, if I want to, I should be able to do it as long as I love the Lord. And yet God tells us a lot of things in the Bible, talks about separation from the world, coming out from the world, being separate. He talks about the discipleship in Luke 14, about if you wanna be a disciple, here's some things you gotta do. And we read those things. Our mind begins to compute and calculate and we begin to get the picture. And then as we get the picture, the devil comes in, he says, well, how many people do you think really subscribe to that? Oh, they all agree with it, because you're a Christian, you go to church, you gotta say amen. But how many people do you really know that live that way? How many preachers do you know that live that way? And you begin to think, well, I don't know a lot of people. In fact, I know very few people that live that way. And then the devil says, but well, then don't you think? Here's where the mixture comes in. This is how people get deceived. Well then don't you think that it's not as strict and as tight as some of these old fogey fundamentalists say it is that maybe God, he knows you're human and you're normal and he knows that you can't and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you're on this this earth once, you ought to have a good time while you're here. You don't wanna get bogged down in all of these strict rules and regulations, they call it. Relax, I mean, after all. And so a lot of people are talked out of the faith that way because what they're seeing before them as God's way to live, remember we use 2 Corinthians 4, about the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that bleed not, lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God who shines in our hearts to give a revelation of that glory is the one who reveals to us all that we need to know about the kind of life we ought to live and so forth. And there's just a lot of people who really and truly, truth be known, they really don't want to pay that kind of a price to live that way, not right now. Maybe when I'm older and I can't get around, that'd be all right. But right now, man, that'd make me so different from everybody I know, I wouldn't have any friends and so forth. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are making adjustments in their life as to the kind of Christian life they're gonna live and it's a fatal departure. There's no two ways or three ways to get to heaven. There's only one way. And that's God's way. And we either accept that or subscribe to it, or we don't. But the choice is ours because that's the way we live in this world. We live by choices. Now, tonight I want to talk about attitudes. Attitudes, because when we speak of attitudes, or with the verses we looked at had the word mind in it, because the mind is the organ of mental perception, it's what we use to think with, it's what we reason with. Our life is determined by what our choices our mind makes. I wish I could say our life is determined by the word we hear that God hides in our heart, but if we don't choose to live that way, it's just a word we've hid in our heart, we might memorize it, but it's not a living word because we don't live by it. I wish I could say that everybody that's heard the word live by it, but they don't. And we have a lot of reasons and excuses. Our mind gives us a lot of logical and reasonable excuses why we don't do the things that we should. And those things are acceptable to us. But also the things that, as I said earlier, that we get in our mind, the things that come into our minds become our attitude, how we view things, how we react, how we respond. We develop ideas about people, about cultures, race, sin, righteousness. We have all these kind of ideas about that. And some people prove to be very difficult people to get along with. Some people are very gentle. Some people are very kind. But Some people have an attitude. You've heard the phrase cop an attitude. When they cop an attitude, it's a personality feature of that person whereby they begin to be difficult or different see it's interesting that the word fatal attitude neither word is in the king james bible like word rapture they're not bible words but i think there's a whole lot in the bible about them because it's not in the bible i couldn't get it out of a greek dictionary but here's the english word from webster's dictionary of what the word fatal means because i got to define the word in order to talk about it Fatal it is the inevitability or actual occurrence of death or disaster. It's something that is going to happen. You can't get around it. Like uh, fatal disease. You don't just die all of a sudden, but it is inevitable that unless something happens, you will die because of that disease. Or a person makes a fatal mistake, whether it's in a wartime or whether he's driving a car or pulls the wrong button, looks the wrong way, and he makes a mistake, and it becomes fatal. The consequences of what he did cost him or her their lives. That's the consequence of it. Or another definition is concerned with or determining fate. Destiny in so many ways can be determined by decisions you make. You can make a fatal decision. That is, you can make a wrong decision which inevitably leads to to spiritual death. It's your choice, but it was a fatal choice. You may not be dead right now, you may not be in the grave right now, you may be alive breathing and doing well, but a lot of people are making choices that are the wrong choices, they're fatal. Another definition was a deadly choice that brings ruin or causing failure. Like a fatal design of a component in a car or a spaceship, it was a fatal flaw. The design was not good, and it inevitably leads to ruin or disaster. Now listen, a lot of people's lives get ruined. That is, they're prevented from living a joyful, peaceful, overcoming life because of choices they have made or been encouraged to make or been given the idea that that's okay to make, and it's a fatal choice. It's a fatal decision. Because while you are alive and you're breathing well and you go to church and sing songs and all of this, and you're going the wrong way. Remember that verse that says, there is a way that seemeth right, used twice in Proverbs, there's a way that seemeth right unto man. Not God, but unto man. And the end of those ways are fatal because they lead to death. Not a lesser reward in heaven, not a lower place in heaven, But God said it leads to death. So it's important for us not to make fatal choices in our life as Christians. Because if anybody in this world is a target of the devil, it's you people. Because if he can talk you out of it, he can usually talk your family members, your friends, those that are watching you, those who have heard about your life. And if he can get you to do the wrong things and make wrong decisions, they can dismiss themselves from needing or wanting what you've got. And so we want to look tonight at fatal attitudes because nobody wants in their life anything fatal. Even a man dying of thirst would not dare drink a cold, let's call it glass of tea, a big cold bucket like those big gulpers you get in service stations. I still don't know how many people drank that much pop at one time, but the big gulp, and it's a bucket of pop. And so somebody hands you a bucket full of tea, it's got ice floating in it. It's the best tea that has ever been brewed in the history of man. The only thing wrong with the tea, it's got a few drops of strychnine in it. But even a man dying of thirst wouldn't drink that, but that'd be a fatal decision, wouldn't it? You're not gonna drink that stuff. It'll kill me if I drink it, even as bad as I want something to drink. I'm not gonna drink that because that will ruin my life. Well, we don't want anything fatal in our lives. I would like to think that tonight I have rid or am ridding myself of all the wrong things that lead to disaster or ruin or I'm being deliberate as I speak by making good choices and responding right to God of everything that God has to judge. And He is cleansing me so He doesn't have to judge me. And I'm doing all these things and the devil has no place in me and I'm alert and sensitive to wrong moves. And I'd like to think that's true because nobody wants to die a spiritual death and there's nobody in this room who ever wants to go to that place that Jesus has prepared for the devil and his angels. I cannot imagine the disastrous place that that hell must be. And yet while we're here and comfortable on this earth in America, it's easy to reject some things that God says. It's easy to set things aside. I'm not ready for that. It's easy to do that and those are fatal choices and fatal decisions that people make. But an attitude, an attitude is something else. An attitude is a mental position that you have with regard to things. It's how you think. It's how you view other people. It's how you view things in this world. It's your attitude. Now, if you have a bad attitude, we all know what a bad attitude is because we've said that about somebody. Boy, he or she has a bad attitude. What do you mean by bad attitude? Well, their view towards somebody or something is not good. They're real ugly about it. They have nothing good to say about it. You can look at their face and you can see the scowl. Or you can see the meanness. Or you can tell by the tone of their voice how they feel about something. And when you talk about somebody having a bad attitude, you inherently know nobody should be like that. Yet we all do that occasionally. But it's not good to be scowling and scoffing and angry and full of all the things that make us hurt people and we don't need to be cocky and mean. How do you know that a cocky person has a bad attitude. Somewhere in his life, the estimate of himself is so great that you must also share his estimate. (laughs) I am pretty much the stuff, you all know that. So in order to get this, he dresses outrageously or she does, gaudy, whatever you want. It's attention. It may look goofy, but at least it's attention. And if you can act bad enough, People will notice you and they'll talk about you. If you're successful, they'll dress like you. You might be a rock star. How many rock stars have attitudes? Now, I'm assuming and when I look at CDs, you can always see the picture of the group on there. They all look like they have good attitudes. What I get from it, I see a cocky, irreverent attitude, You know, standing there with my guitar, leaning against a rock or something. (laughs) Now, to me, that's an attitude. Say, well, it's just put on. Maybe it is put on. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it is put on. If a person walks around kind of with a little strut, looking at everybody, he's got an attitude. Or if she does that, she's got an attitude. It's something that is birthed inside of a person, Some where in their life, something is birthed in there that gives way to this kind of a lifestyle. Rich people often have an attitude. They like to sit in the main seat. They like to be noticed. When they drive up somewhere, they want somebody to open the door for them so everybody goes, whoa, and they, because they're cool. I think acting cool is an attitude. Everybody all, According to you, all just stay in bed all day then. No, I think when people are mean, and people scowl. I think when people are smart alecks, I think when they talk ugly and vulgar, when they're always against something and mouthy about something, I think they have an attitude. That's what I'm talking about. The mind they think with thinks differently than it ought to think. Some people see themselves as superior to other people and they tend to look down their nose at other people and they see the way a person is dressed or the what kind of car people drive or something and some people look down their nose at people like that as though they're inferior to you well that's an attitude i've seen it in the church i've seen it in lots of places seen a lot in the world a bad attitude is a difficult person hard to relate to hard to get along with Hard to associate with because they get ticked off by little bitty things, and when they get ticked off, they get very mouthy. Let me tell you where you can find an attitude every day. You go either Kroger or Walmart. <laughs> not because of Kroger, not because of Walmart. I'm using those two stores because they're two common large shopping places in our town, Shelbyville. It could have been any other store in some other town, but they happen to be the two biggest in our town. and or well, somebody behind you is in a hurry and the lady is having a hard time or the deep, deep machine slows down or quits or something, you'll hear them breathing harder behind you. And they wait for somebody to notice, my, you're breathing hard, are you okay? That's to come on to say, ask me why I'm breathing like this. <laughs> why are you breathing like that? Because <laughs> I'm hot. I don't like these kind of, I don't like his. I wish they did. why don't they do that? Well, I wouldn't vote for him. That's an attitude. You see, let me tell you something, Jesus never works in you like that. So anytime you act like that, it wasn't God. Well, if it wasn't God, who was it? Well, something follows you around, it's not goodness and mercy. Something's following you around like a little fox biting on your grapes, spoiling your vines. The devil knows what ticks you off. He knows what gets your goat as though you should have one. He knows what makes you mad. Ask any young boy girl thing, and she can get mad because he doesn't pay enough attention to her. Or he sees an an ex girlfriend or something, and hose it over. Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you again. Well, she's so mad the time they get in the car because he spoke to her. He said, What was I supposed to Spit on her, throw the door in her face, so we get out of the way, woman, and go on out in the car? <laughs> no, it's just that there's an immature, insecure posture that some people have that they've got to have attention. And if you marry that girl, you might as well. Get you an extra bedroom built up in the attic in the corner of the roof back up there where the squirrels try to get in. Because if you don't get delivered from that kind of an attitude, you'll carry it into marriage, it'll be transferred into your children and you will become like so many adults are they become an unhappy, miserable, never content person. Anybody who is not content and not at peace and doesn't have a joyfulness about them, has an attitude problem. You can say, well, that's a faith problem. Well, they'll go together, but they have an attitude problem. Attitudes are bad things. You ever heard of gangs? I hear there are gangs around. How do gangs, our own little view of them, probably from movies or something, but how do gang members act? They always have to act tough. You can never be weak. If there's any weakness found in you, you don't wanna fight. If there's ever a weakness about you, any fear ever shows up, they'll either put you out of the gang or they'll hurt you. Because you gotta have this air about you, of who you are, who you think you are. You gotta make sure that everybody knows that you're somebody. You don't mess with me. Because a bad attitude, like in gang members, wants to hurt people. We want people to be intimidated, to be afraid of us. You take a terrorist. A terrorist, as we know it today, who want to hurt America destroy Americans and American people and the American way of life, they don't hate us because they've been here and are disgusted with what we do. They hate us because somebody told them that's what they ought to do. Not everybody in these Muslim countries are terrorists. In fact, there's only a few of them that are really jihadists. Most of the the rest of them, like we see in Iran today, just want a better life, that's all. You can't blame them for that. But a terrorist, a terrorist has an attitude. He sees an American and immediately there's this hate that begins to come up. That guy thinks and and he doesn't know a thing about you. Any terrorist that wanted to kill me or my family, it's not because he hates me. He doesn't know me. He has a philosophy that's been drilled into his heart. And that's the way he thinks. In homes where there is race problems with, you know, prejudice against other races or cultures, whether it's the African-American or Hispanics or somebody from another country, that's drilled into people from their childhood. It becomes an attitude, a way of thinking by which you judge and measure other people and the way you treat people, it's an attitude. You look down on people because you think they're inferior to you. After all, the majority race in America, white people. And Hispanics and African-Americans make up the two other minorities, biggest minorities in our country. Therefore, we're superior. Now, people think like that. You find there's these race groups like skinheads, what a name, skinheads or white supremacists and the Ku Klux Klan who wanna promote that because they have an attitude they just have a bad attitude about these other people. You have Black Panthers and you have a lot of people, I've seen a lot of African Americans look at me and wouldn't be nice or kind to me if they tried, because I'm white, I'm just a cracker, and so they can't be that nice to me because of who I am. And yet they don't know me, they don't know that I'm willing to help those people and accept them. You can't help people who don't like you, you can try to, but you can't. But anyway. There are just people that are that way. Some people have a score to settle. Somewhere in their past, somebody took advantage of. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe somebody ran off with your mother or your daddy. Maybe it was revenge. You get out of prison, a lot of people in prison don't have long to get out, and some of them only want to get out so they can get revenge on the people that got them in prison in the first place. It's a driving thing but it's an attitude they have about somebody somewhere. Sometimes that same attitude in a church leads to unforgiveness. We are resentful towards some people who are doing better than you are, or she's prettier than you are, or he's more handsome or more popular, and you kind of want to find fault with them. I know girls never have problems with other girls. I know that especially in so-called beauty contests or things at school, they never view the one who wins with a critical eye. Well, watch her. she did The only reason she got They wouldn't do that. But those who mouth and murmur about that have an attitude. It's just the way they look at people and the way you look at people and the way you talk about people and act about people is an indication of the kind of person you are. There's a flaw in your life and it could be fatal because you're not allowed to have unforgiveness against anybody. You're not allowed to want revenge against anybody. Never a time in a Christian life are you allowed to get even. But if that thing is in you driving you, it's a fatal thing. And if it gets root in your life and a root of bitterness takes hold of your life, it'll destroy you. It will absolutely destroy you. But when people are defiant and they want to hurt people, when people have problems with races and everything else, there's a real problem with those people. Turn to Ephesians 4. Just for a moment, I want to read a verse of Scripture in Ephesians 4 about attitudes. Bitterness is a terrible thing. Let me tell you something. Bitterness is found in far more people than you realize. We find the words bitterness of soul several times in the Bible. It's just hurting on the inside which wants to recoil on the outside. You're bitter against a mother or a father, a neighbor next door, or the military or the police, or maybe it's the IRS. Maybe it was a government agency. Maybe it was an employer who wouldn't employ you. Maybe it was a preacher who hurt your feelings. Maybe it was an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, or something like that, which wounded you pretty deeply, and it made you seethe with hurt and pain, and you get, it's called a root of bitterness. And when that thing gets lodged in people's lives, they'll never know what joy and peace is, because they're driven to wanna get even. They're driven to wanna hurt as they've been hurt. It's a terrible thing. You can preach about it a lot. Not everybody gets free from it, but you can be free from it. But bitterness is an attitude. Nobody's told you you had to be bitter. Nobody told you you had to be angry. Nobody told you you had to be upset all the time. You made a choice to be that way. Love is a choice. Hate is a choice. And you stay bitter long enough, it turns into hate. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter four and verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, it sounds obvious to me that these were things that the people that he's talking to used to do the way they used to be. If I were to ask you tonight, how many of you have ever been bitter about something or somebody? Well, most of you would hold up your hand. Has anybody ever talked about you? Has anybody ever cost you something? Somebody one time kept me from going to a meeting. I was invited to go somewhere and a phone call was made and I was prevented from going there because of what these other people said. Now you could be bitter about that if you wanted to. I tend to think of it, maybe I didn't belong there in the first place. Now the person who did the calling shouldn't have done that. That's not a Christian trait either. The Bible says be tenderhearted towards one another, not try to hurt, not try to get even, not slander or evil speak about somebody. The church I've been in since I was saved, the kingdom of God, I've seen so much of this my whole life. I've never seen a time it stopped. I've never seen a time in my Christian life that these things stop happening. No matter how much you teach people that we should have a good attitude, they keep a bad one. Not all the time. Listen to it again. Let all bitterness and wrath, fighting and fussing and side choosing and clamor, backbiting and yapping and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice because behind it is malice. And be kind hearted one to another Be kind-hearted one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. What kind of an attitude would you have if you did verse 32? What kind of an attitude would you have? You'd have a good attitude. You wouldn't have anybody to be mad at if you forgive them. If you forgive somebody that you were bitter against, you're not bitter anymore, are you? If you forgive somebody, are you free? If you forgave them. Every time you forgive somebody who's greatly offended you, the weight of that unforgiveness and that anger is gone. But if you say you forgive somebody, and the next time in a conversation that name comes up, and you go back to talking, you didn't forgive them. Your attitude about that person is as vile now as it was then, or it's probably worse now because you think you're all right now when you're not. You gotta learn to shut your mouth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. These are your brothers and your sisters. They're all different from you are. Maybe different color, different background, different views. Some are deep in the Lord, some are shallow, some try, some don't. And you gotta love them. Jesus said, even as I have loved you, you've got to love them. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be what? What's the last word that I read? Be defiled. Does your Bible use the word defiled? Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. God's favor goes with you as a Christian. Don't violate it. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Well let me ask you a simple question. What then, in one verse of scripture in the Bible, what defiles Christians? Bitterness. That's an attitude. You're bitter because you' got an attitude about something or somebody. You weren't elected, you weren't voted for. You were not recognized. And therefore you get a little sullen about it. And that's what defiles you. Now, let me say this, the word defile has to do with spots, blemishes, stains. One of the things that God says that we're gonna be cleansed of when he comes is without spot, wrinkle or any such thing. It's bitterness that keeps those things active in your life. If you don't let go of it, it becomes fatal. Unless you think you can be defiled and God say, well done, thou good and defiled saint. He says, and I'll read it one last time. He says, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby Many be defiled, because that's the way the devil operates. He wants to defile as many people as he can and destroy as many lives as he can. A bad attitude, a bad system of thinking, a bad state of mind. This is your mental game right here. How you think, the thing that promotes the choices you make, your lifestyle, your behavior, your choice of words, Your choice is the course of action you're gonna take, whether to turn the other cheek or hit somebody in the mouth. Whether to be kind to somebody or say, what do you know about anything? And it's your choice. But whatever you do is an indication, not only the state of your mind, but the state of your heart, your condition before God. Either you're learning and trying and you're overcoming, or you're yielding to this springing up of the old ways and you become bitter about this and you want somebody to know it. Maybe you like to sit around and talk about how bad Democrats are, how bad Republicans are, how bad terrorists are, how bad anything is. You wanna dote on the negative things all day long, you can do that, but you'll get an attitude. You'll develop an attitude. And it won't be long if you keep an attitude that's negative all the time, you become a sour person. Because no matter how joyful the atmosphere around you is, you'll find something wrong with it because of an attitude. You just cop that attitude and so forth. Now take a good attitude. That's a bad attitude. A good attitude. Cheerful. Kind. How about a smile on a face? You think a person has a good attitude is more likely to smile than to scowl? I think a person with a good attitude is the kind of person you really enjoy being around. Not only are they encouraging, they don't put you down, they might correct you if you're spiritually wrong, they might say you shouldn't do that. But that's just because of what we do as Christians. We are brothers keepers. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual correct that person. So we're allowed to do that. We don't have an attitude about it, except the mind of Christ which should promote us. My wife has a good attitude. Is that okay to say that? Yes, it is. She has a good attitude. I'm comfortable being around her because she's never gonna hurt me. She doesn't always write down in her little notepad all the things wrong with me that she needs to deal with. Because a footnote is, it probably wouldn't work anyway. And maybe that's an attitude but it's comfortable to be around people that are peaceful and contented. People who have no ax to grind. People who are not telling you how bad they want to get even with somebody. I remember speaking once to a person, and in the course of the conversation, it finally got around to something else well, you know, this is happening now, we've got to deal with this, and then this over here is happening, I you know, just, you want to hold the phone down and say, what do you really believe? Your life shouldn't be driven with all these, what are we going to do this? What What have you been taught all these years, or have you been taught? You know, of all the talk show, Christian talk show people I've ever heard, there's only one that I can think of who has a continually, at least to me, good attitude. And that was Michael Medved, he's the Jewish fellow. It seemed like he always can respond to the most negative comments on the radio with a good attitude. He doesn't scream back at people. Well, I think that's something that, I don't know about him, but when God gives us this this word and this word is hidden in our heart and we believe it, we have no reason to have a bad attitude. I have no reason to question the, the state of the economy in the world. Because why? God will provide for all of my needs. I don't depend on the government or credit cards or anything else, it's just God will take care of it. He always has. Well, what about the prime, rate? I don't know what prime rate, all I know is what a good piece of prime beef tastes like. But I'm not much on prime rates. They never taste, that didn't sound good. But see, I have something that supersedes all of that. And if your mind is the mind that Christ gives, if it's being renewed, you begin to think like that or think on these things. And therefore, you don't have that bad attitude. When people are around you, they know that you don't talk down. You don't talk about. You don't talk doubtfully about, I don't know what I'm going to do and this is getting so bad. Or who do you think? I'll tell you what. You don't do that no more. Because your mind is being renewed, I hope. And you have a different reason for thinking about things positively. Not because you got money in your pocket, not because you feel better, but because you got a promise. And you got a promise that says, my God shall, or if thou canst believe, all things are possible. And because this is beginning to saturate your mind and your thinking, it becomes your attitude about things in this world. Even death, what did the psalmist say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, everybody will. Unless Jesus comes, we all will. But he said, even though I walk through that valley, I will what? No. There's no dread. I'm not terrified at the fact that I'm going to heaven. Now, if I'm not saved, you better get it right because you only get one choice. You die once. Physically. Physically. So you see, God wants us to know that a good attitude is a result of the Word of God, not only dwelling in our heart, but also in our thinking. Didn't He say, think on these things? Let me show you some verses in the Bible. Let's follow me about some things where God gives you something, even though the word attitude is not in the Bible. Scripture shows us some of the things that God expects from us concerning our attitude. Now, Colossians 3 first. Would you look in Colossians chapter 3? and verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another, not pouncing on each other, And forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, A-N-Y, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. What if we live like that? As I said earlier, all the years I've been in this Christian life, I've never seen this just take over. People who quit quarreling people who become tender hearted, people who realize that I am here as a Christian because God wanted to save me. I deserve nothing but death. I was the lowest of the low. I was the bottom of the barrel. And God forgave me of some of the most horrible sins. I am thankful to the light. Now, he said, if you have that as a mind, a truly thankful, humble mindset before God who has done such a great thing for you, you should also have that when you look at other people. You are better than nobody. You're never cool in the kingdom of God. Never, ever, ever one time are you cool. God gives us nothing that is cool. He gives us things that are spiritual. We like to think it's cool, but it's not. I am here by invitation tonight. I did not earn my place in the kingdom. I did not deserve it. I was never good enough for it, I'm still not. But I am here because God invited me to. I didn't accept him as my savior, he accepted me as his son. He gave me the privilege of receiving into my life, his life. Now, if I'm recognizing all the things that he's done for me, what then should my attitude be for other people whom he's done equally the same thing for? There's nobody in this room that's inferior to anybody. I don't care who you are, what you got, how far you come or haven't come. I don't care how old you are. Nobody in this room is superior to anybody else. At the foot of the cross, which we come to, the ground is level. And whosoever will may come, but those who do come are the ones that God draws. And God didn't draw you because he loves you more than anybody else. He drew you because he loved you to be sure. But he loves, whom he loves, he loves alike. He loves you. He brings you to him. Therefore, when you look at other people, maybe who are struggling or slower than you are, or less interested in spiritual things as you think you are, you need to be more long, what's the word we use, long-suffering? Is that still in there? You need to be long suffering to those people. And humbleness of mind, he said, meekness, slow to anger. God put up with so much in us, and he still does. You remember that when you relate to other people that he loves as much as he loves you. You be a part of their progress, you help them along the way to succeed. You be in their life for good and not bad. Don't ever be the cause of somebody blowing their stack. I ain't never going back to that church again the way they talk to me. Don't ever be like that. Unless, of course, somebody's really vile and you corrected them and they took it wrong. We're not in here to correct each other. God does the correcting. We're here to remind each other, trust the Lord, worship together, bond together, be a one body together. It's God who makes it all work. We need to find our place in the body with the kind of an attitude that is never fatal, never leads to destruction, never leads to ruin, never leads to rejection. But an attitude that is formed with the mind of Christ in you and you think that way. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for what shall they do? They shall reign and rule with Christ on this earth. They will inherit this earth. The meek, who are the meek? They're the ones who turn the cheek, who won't fight back. Who quit viewing others with less than favorable attitudes, favorable things to say. They quit being ugly about people. They're meek. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful. What shall they do? They shall obtain mercy. What do we do with one of the most natural occurring personality traits in the world? Anger. Is there anybody in this room that has never been angry? (laughs) All right. Everybody in this room has had either been angry or had opportunities to be angry with somebody in your life. Anger is not a sin. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus looked about them with anger. So it's not like anger is a horrible thing. But being angry all the time, having an attitude about something that just makes you hot all the time is really bad. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, and talking about your brother. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, I mean, say his brother didn't do something you should deal with him about. Angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Does your Bible say that? Whoo. Whosoever shall be angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. God deliver us from being angry. Think of all the things people are angry about, the economy, a parent's decision. How many of you young people know that parents have to make decisions? that if you make foolish mistakes out there in the world, you know that you shouldn't. It's your parents that suffer too. They wanna know who their parents are. I would say about a lot of kids I've seen in my life, who raised that? Somebody raises children. Well, we all have a name and we go out in society, that's how people judge our whole family, by the family name, by the way you act, and the way you, if, if you've got an attitude, probably either you haven't believed anything you've been taught or you're running around with a bunch of people that have attitudes and you wanna be accepted by them, so you talk like them. That's how evil company corrupts. But that's a choice you made. You, you made a choice to run around with him or with her or that little group, and if you want them to accept you, you've gotta be like them. But talk about anger. You're in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. That's one verse description of the Bible that tells you that hell is a place of fire, a burning, tormenting place. Thou fool. You know, the word fool could mean somebody who is slow, someone who's not paying attention. Jesus spoke of a foolish man, remember that? But in this case, fool is a kind of a word you'd, if you look at somebody and say, you stupid fool, that is something you don't do. Because behind you saying that, the thing that promotes such a saying is an attitude. It's a bad one. You've had it for a long time. You've never been delivered from it and you've harbored that thing in your heart. It might've been funny the way you said it to go around calling people fools, but it's a dangerous, fatal word, a fatal attitude that promotes that. And if you read that carefully, you'll find that God himself says simple things about your attitude towards other people. You're around people all the time that make mistakes. You're not to call them names you're stupid, you idiot, that's bad. That's really not good and you shouldn't do that. And if you do that, you need to repent of that and ask God to put a watch before your mouth and guard the door of your lips. Turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 29. Because this is what an angry man does. Now anger is an attitude. Your expression of anger is a bad attitude. Would you agree with that? I don't mean and righteous indignation. I mean your attitude of just being angry, stoplight, people that can't drive. you ever been around somebody that can't drive? <laughs> Boy, I've said things to people up there. Are you a realtor looking to buy this place going 20 miles an hour? Then one day I was driving home just this week looking at my radio or something or a phone or something looking at it going 25 miles an hour. I'm glad nobody's behind me because I would have gotten what I deserved if they had spoken like that. But attitudes, just the way you react and speech, that comes out of your mouth. It's your attitude, a fault-finding attitude. Something's always wrong, I gotta blow this puke hole. That's a bad attitude. (laughs) Heard that growing up. Listen at this. Proverbs 29 verse 22. An angry man stirreth up strife. He does. And a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Those are two things, two personality traits you need to stay away from. Somebody who is easily ticked off, somebody who flies off the handle easily or quickly has a bad attitude. It's a fatal attitude. Because if they don't get corrected from that, they have to face the judge. God has to judge that. Did you know that? He has to judge it. Because he's made a statement that it's wrong. And if you persist in doing it anyway, then he has to judge it, And you don't want him to have to judge you. Look in Proverbs 21 and verse 4. Back to this cocky attitude. This I'm cool, you're not attitude. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Let me ask you all something. Easy question. Is sin a fatal condition? Isn't that why people perish? Isn't that why God rejects people? did not he say that your sins have separated between you and your God? So whatever is sin, whatever is defined as sin, is fatal. You can be delivered from it to be sure. Doesn't mean if you did it once, you're forever doomed. No, you can be delivered from it. But if you're not delivered from it, if you persist in doing it because maybe a lot of other people do also, it's fatal. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care who you listen to or how many stripes you got in that church. It's a fatal thing. A proud look or a high look. Cocky. I'm better than you are. Look. That notice me look. And a proud heart. God hates it. Look in Proverbs 18. In verse 24, you want friends? You wanna have the kind of attitude that people like to be around you because of it? You're friendly, you're kind, you're nice, you're mild, you don't fly off the handle, you're easy to get along with, you put up with a lot without being rude. Well, here's a verse. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. That's obvious. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I think there's a lot of unhappy people in this world that don't have very many friends. But if you want to have friends, you gotta show yourself mean. No, you gotta show yourself as rough and tough and hard to bluff. What did it say? Oh, you must show yourself friendly. What about slander? Can you do that? Is that fatal? Turn to Psalm 101. Aren't you glad you brought a Bible? Psalm 101 and see what that says. Psalm 101 and verse five. Who so privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Now is that judgment? Let me ask you a question. How is it then that so many Christians continue to exist? (laughs) There's a whole lot of slander goes on in the church and it doesn't seem to be disapproved of. A lot of people do it. And yet God says, I'll cut them off. But it doesn't look like they're cut off. But, you know, when you begin to decline spiritually, you begin losing interest in spiritual things, you begin to lose your zeal and your worship thing. And all. When all of that begins to fade, you've been cut off. Nothing is inspiring you anymore. It's not there like it once was. Instead of a living river or pool of water, you're just a stagnant little pond. And it's all fading. Here's one of the reasons it is who so privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart, will I not suffer? Let me ask you this, do you think proud looks and haughty hearts are going to heaven? Well, then you gotta realize this, that a haughty heart, a proud look is an attitude. I mean, that's an attitude, you choose to act that way. And the only way you'll ever get away from it is to repent because you now see that it's a sin that God must judge and He will judge it. And if you persist in doing it because, I'll tell you one thing, He's not gonna tell, I'll get the last one, remember if you keep doing it, you won't make it because in the kingdom of God, there's no room for that. I could have titled this series, The Mechanics of Discipleship, to tell you how narrow the way is. Not trying to make this hard, but just trying to bring to our memories the demands that God puts on us to be totally different from the world. God's going to judge the world, and anybody like the world He's going to judge them. And the only reason He's not going to judge us in most cases is because, well, whom He loves, He disciplines, doesn't He? So that we will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. He puts a number on us to correct us, so when judgment day comes, He won't judge you because He corrected you. You need to be thankful for that. That's a loving thing that God does when He puts you in a corner upside down and flatter your back or whatever in order to correct you because he loves you. Now, the worst attitude and the fatal attitude now that I can get to that is your attitude towards God being different than what God wants. Your attitude towards God. Look at this attitude. There are Christians who've been in church their whole life and their attitude, their Thinking and picture of God is, well, you know, he's God. He created the world and he's loving and he understands. And like my assistant basketball coach said many years ago when we were going to a clinic, basketball clinic, I started witnessing to him. I asked Bill, I said, Bill, have you ever been saved? And he got uncomfortable with that. He said, here's how I see it. He said, If God is as loving as the Bible says He is, He won't send me to hell. And I got to thinking through the years about that statement. If everybody in the world is convinced that God loves them, God can do no more for them than that. If God has committed Himself to the well being of every human being, then no human being is going to die, going to perish. You think of it. If God says, I love in a way that I'm gonna commit myself to the well-being of all human beings, all human beings are gonna make it. But the fact is that not all human beings are gods. Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, he didn't pray for the world. You know who he said he prayed for? He said, I pray for those you gave me. He didn't pray for everybody. I don't wanna get off of this too far, but while you've compelled me to, would you turn to John 17 for just a moment? John chapter 17, verse nine, talking about his disciples. He said, I pray for them. I pray not for whom? Wow. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them specifically, which you have given to me. So the world has to do with people in the world. He says, I'm not praying for all the people in the world. I'm praying for the ones in the world that you gave me. Is it God who gives people to be his? No man can come to the son except the father which sent the son draw him. You did not choose me. I chose you. That's whom Jesus prays for. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Didn't he say that? Yes. Do you think that God was working in them to do of his good pleasure? No. Of course not. They perish." He said one time about those people, he said, leave them alone. Right. And two other places in the New Testament about people, it says that God gave them up to their vile passions. He said, leave them alone. He didn't say I love them like that. He just said, leave them alone. Look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also in Shelbyville, Kentucky, which shall believe. He not only prayed for those that God gave him in this first batch of saved people, but for those who shall believe. Who did Jesus pray for? See, I'm not going to tell you that everybody in this world is loved by the Lord, that God does not commit himself to the world's well-being, but to those whom he calls to himself. He personally commits himself to dwell in you for his good pleasure. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Christ in you is a hope of glory. For every person saved, there's a whole bunch that could care less about all of this. There's no work going on in them. There's no tenderness. There's no worship. There's no desire. Just a lot of yakety yak. And yet for those that he's dealing with, there's this constant working. There's this desire to draw nigh to God. It's God's work. You don't see that in very many people. But Jesus said, only a few were going to make it. Let me tell you something. If Jesus died to save the whole world, then he failed. But if Jesus' death was sufficient to save the whole world, then he has succeeded because in this world, he drew you and I to himself. He didn't have to, but he did. And because he did, he is able to save to the uttermost Those who come to Him. And yet the only ones who come to Him are those whom the Father draws. We have a mushy idea. You know, for many years, I didn't like anybody preaching about love because I'm in the faith camp and all this love stuff is just a weakness that they have. And they think that's enough. But now, you know, the last couple of weeks, I didn't mean to get on this subject of love. I've had a whole new look about a lot of things in the last two weeks. Simply because I've added one word to the definition of love, and that's commitment. I understand it now. When it's a happy marriage, successful Christian life? It's because you're committed to somebody who alone can bring it to pass. And God, who commits himself to the well-being of his own people, he said, I lay down my life for my sheep. You think everybody in the world is his sheep? See, so it gets quiet. I'm glad it does, because if you think about it, it'll make you look around, but what's he talking about? Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And they alone will hear my voice, and they alone will follow me. A lot of people come into the kingdom, but they're not his people. Was Israel called his elect people? Out of all the people in the world, he chose a nation that was in a nation. Israel was in Egypt, and he brought them out And he tells us that not all of those people that were brought out of Egypt were elect. Because everybody 20 and older died in the wilderness. But he was able to save the ones that were 20 and old and he took them in. Not because it was a young man's place. Because Caleb, you know, he was a pretty frisky old fella. But when you start thinking about, maybe we ought to teach on it again. But you start thinking about the sovereignty of God. And the love that God has for his people and not for the world because he told us don't love the world. Don't love its systems, don't love its allurements, don't love its entertainment, don't love anything about the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, pride of life, and all that stuff is of the devil. And if you're deriving your pleasure and hopes and dreams in this world, then you're not of God. Only God can put in your heart to want to get out of that. And when he does, Boy, you can't keep those people out of church. You can't keep them from seeking after the kingdom of God because it's the most necessary thing in your life. That's the work of God. You compare that with the average church going member somewhere who never occurs to them that there's more to Christianity than just going to a meeting. The life you live is just the best you can. That's what somebody told them. Do your best and hope it works. But a bad attitude that God has to judge, some of these people just well, he's just God. I'm okay. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I mean, after all, I mean, he understands. You know, he loves me. Isn't that enough? Why do you have to complicate it with making all these conditions and rules? Well, I'm not. I just want you to be informed that to love God is to commit your life to him on his terms to undo everything that is between you and him and surrender. You were bought with a price. Give up. Yield, yield your life, yield your will to God and say what Jesus said. My meat is to do your will. My peace is in doing your will. My joy is in living on your terms. But when you have this other thing, like this coach I was talking to you about, you just have a half-hearted attempt at Christianity. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. I want to close. You just have a half-hearted attempt at Christianity. The fatal attitude that people in the church have, the thing that inspired this whole message, it's when people take God for granted. They assume that they're okay. They assume that He will be there. They assume that He does this. They assume that He does that. They take God for granted. That's why a man-made religion gives us man-made excuses. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, I don't know that anybody can do that. Well, after all, I mean, come on, he loves everybody, doesn't he? Doesn't he love everybody? Well, if he loves us, he's not gonna let us die. You don't know people that don't think like that. In fact, you know very few that would be willing to even say such a thing, the opposite of it. Oh, he loves us. Christians tell sinners all the time, heathens on the street, well, God loves you. He loves those terrorists that bomb this and bomb you. You know, he loves those people. Where does it say that? Who taught us that? Where does it say that? If it says that, believe that. If it doesn't say that, you need to find out what you believe. It's not wrong to believe right. Amen. The devil has closed the eyes of so many people. He just closed their eyes. They no longer can see it. Listen, these three things. They have been distracted. They've been looking other places and thinking other ways. They've been detoured. And they're being devoured. I thought you'd like that. You're distracted with all these other ways, so you now get to pick and choose what kind of Christian life you wanna live, what kind of church you begin to pick and choose. What best suits me? Hmm. And then you get detoured, you take the wrong turn, and the enemy comes along and devours you because of fatal choices. And when somebody tells us our choices are bad and we cop an attitude, it just makes it more clear to us that we've been duped. Maybe we ought to add that as a fourth D. Distracted, detoured, devoured, and duped. But duped would be second. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, and we'll close with this. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, verse 14. These things saith the amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, but I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, what will God do? We're not talking here about whether or not God loves you. It's more about whether or not you love God. If you're cold, you're indifferent. You're casual. You take God for granted. You take all this business of Christianity for granted. You've seen little ever happen about it. Little has ever been meaningful. So it's just a, yeah, yeah. So you live like that, but you go to church because inherently you're a religious person. You wanna go to church. You feel better about yourself being there. And after all, it couldn't hurt you. It's good for everybody ought to go to church. But your attitude towards God is that he's not just absolutely necessary or essential in your life, except as an idea that, you know, he's God, he created the world and all of that. But he's just not a necessary, vital thing I must have. I don't need to learn of him or take this yoke stuff upon me. I mean, that'd be nice to do, but you don't have to do that. He doesn't really care if you believe him or not, or you trust him or you walk his way or not but you're religious. So you go to church, you're not exactly quitting. I mean, you're there, you're helping, you play the organ and and all this kind of stuff. However, you're lukewarm. And says, well, God loves you anyway. God, you you know, he understands you're just flesh. You know what he said about lukewarmness? He said, as you and I would say, you make me sick in my stomach. I don't know what the other word for regurgitate is. It's not a nice sounding word. It rhymes with Luke and starts with the piece. That's as far as I'll go with it. You are such a distasteful thing in the mouth of God in his life that it's a sickly way you live. And yet people who live that way, that's their attitude. That's why they have no faith or they have faith. That's why they're not interested or they are interested. It's all about your attitude. And when you're cold, you're lukewarm, Would you agree with me tonight that lukewarmness is a fatal attitude? It's fatal because God rejects you. Didn't he say? Let me read it again. Maybe I didn't read all of it. Verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. And here's why. Because you say I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I don't need anything. And you know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I'd say you're at the bottom of the barrel. What about next time a fatal response? Is there such a thing as a wrong choice? Life is full of choices. Bow your head with me for a minute. Heavenly Father, you brought us here again. We believe that. Everything is as you planned it. Being here tonight, the words that we've heard, the way you've interpreted these things to the minds of your people, it's all a part of your plan. My prayer tonight is that no word would go unheeded to those that are on the edge, about to walk away or those that are about to lose interest or lose faith or whatever I pray that you will deal kindly with those people, whatever it takes to keep us in the kingdom. I pray for a good attitude for all of us, that we might be gentle and kind and at (coughs) peace, not only with you, but with each other, that we would overlook others' faults because we ourselves have faults. You would teach all of us your ways and help us to know that as we're being joined together in a body, that each one of us has something to contribute in the edifying of your body of believers. Help us to be a vital and a constructive part of what your church is about. Bring us into that wonderful place that Jesus said he went to prepare for us and grant us continual grace and mercy to live this life, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.